Father, once again, as we look at your words, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I read recently someone who said, the parables are not harmless tales or interesting stories. They're really subversive stories to undermine our thinking about God and others and ourselves. The parables are subversive stories to undermine our thinking about God and others and ourselves. We need that kind of subversive story because we live in a world that tells us what is true and right in a way that is very different from what Jesus tells us. We live in a world that has different priorities. We live in a world that that has different ways of, of judging and valuing what is good and appropriate and true. And I'm not sure we will ever get to the point where we will not need, until the final judgment, we will not need the help of God to re reimagine our thinking to what the kingdom is as he describes it. There is a sense in which all of Scripture is intended to subvert our thinking, the messages that we keep getting about God and others and ourselves. But there is a way in which the parables are, are means Jesus uses to sort of come in the back door to us. And the story today is no different. This is a story about a, a master who has three servants, and the master is planning to go on a long trip, and he entrusts his servants, I love that word, he entrusts them with a part of his kingdom. He gives them each something of the kingdom. He doesn't tell them, at least from the story, what to do with it. He just gives it to them. The implication is they know what to do with it. What I find fascinating is that he doesn't give them all the same. The master, I think, and I don't think that's an indictment on their worth or value. It's more an understanding the master has about what they can handle, what they're ready for, what's in their best interest. And then the master makes a reckless decision. He leaves them. I would think if he's going to entrust this kind of of wealth from his kingdom, he would stay close and make sure what they do with it. But he doesn't. When it says he entrusts them, he really does entrust them. He goes away on a long journey, and he leaves them to it. He comes back after a long time, and he settles accounts. And whether we like it or not, in the kingdom of God, there is always a settling of accounts. There is always a time, there's time is coming when all will be made clear. When everything will, will be put to right. I think there's a sense in which the book of Revelation is one of the themes, one of the ideas in the book of Revelation. The day is coming 
when, every, when the accounts will be settled. And they'll be settled in a way that may not look like the way accounts get settled now. But from an eternal mindset, from a kingdom perspective, accounts will be settled. And the outcome of the accounts being settled here is that two of the servants are rewarded, they are commended, and one servant is condemned. And on the surface, when you look at the story, it might, we might think, well, maybe this is about the fact that these two guys did pretty well. They made a profit. They doubled what they had, so they get rewarded. The other guy didn't make a profit, so he gets condemned. Maybe as sometimes the story is, is interpreted or told as sort of the, the moral of the story is, use it or lose it. There may be something of that in the story, but I think there's something else going on here as well. I don't think the, the, the reward and the condemnation is about the fact that they were able to hand the master more than they had. I think it's about a willingness to risk for the master and the master's kingdom. There's something about risk, a willingness to risk going on here. In his book, The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck talks about the fact that all of life is a risk. And we can see that. He says the more we love, the more we risk. And I think we understand that too. It's one of the reasons why we're sometimes hesitant to love. Because we know the more we invest of ourselves in another person, the more potential there is to have a deeper hurt if we're rejected. And so we're cautious and we're careful. But the more we love, the more we risk. But then he goes on to say, maybe the greatest risk of life is taking the risk to grow up. To live as an adult. To take responsibility for what we need to be responsible for. To live our lives in a way in which we, we, we do what we're supposed to do. We take the high road instead of the low road. You know, sometimes you hear people in conversations say, who's going to be the adult in the room? Right? Who's going to do the adult thing? I think that's what he's talking about. Now, Jesus says that you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. But what he doesn't say is that you enter the kingdom of God by becoming childish. In fact, I would argue that becoming, entering the kingdom like a little child is actually one of the ways of being an adult because it's about faith and trust and risk. And there is something of that in this story. It's the difference between two servants who say, we'll be adults and, and risk with what we've been given, and one servant who says, I don't want to do that. In his book, uh, Discipling for in Muslim Communities, our own Don Little has a quote from, from Don McMurray, and he talks about the fact that being a discipler is costly. In some places, it can cost you your life. And at the end of the quote, he says, the real difference here, the, real, the, real, the most important thing you have to grasp and embrace is having a heart to want to be a discipler. 
Because when you have a heart to be a discipler, then you do it even at the risk and the cost. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. And I have to tell you, when I, when I read Jesus' response, the master's response to the servant, it surprises me how harsh he is with him. I'm not sure I would have been that harsh with him or that he deserved being so harsh. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. The word wicked is really the word evil. And the word lazy is the, the old English word we don't use a whole lot, slothful. That's one of the seven deadly sins. And what we, when we read the story, we sort of think, well, the guy's just being cautious. He's just afraid and, and so, you know, he's just, he's just a cautious person. Jesus doesn't interpret it that way. Jesus says he's evil and he's lazy, which implies not that he is so much afraid as he is disinterested. Unwilling. I mean, you sort of get that when he says to the master, look, here's what you gave me. You can almost hear him saying, here, take it back. It's yours. I never wanted it in the first place. I didn't ask for it. I'm not, I wasn't looking for it. I don't want it around me anymore. Here, I buried it in the ground so I wouldn't have to think about it. Now I've dug it up. Here, it's yours. You take it. You go with it. Just let me live my life the way I want to. And the implication is, well, I want to be a part of the kingdom. I just want to do it my own way. And Jesus seems to be saying kingdom doesn't work like that. There are far too many people who, who say, well, I want to be a Christian. I just want to be a Christian without any responsibility to God. And Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom works. It's the kingdom is not about how little can I do and still get by. I have to tell you, you know, I have to admit that for much of my academic life, all the way through high school and even a bit into college, my, my academic mindset was how little can I do and still get by? You know, how little can I study and still get a decent grade on the exam? How long can I wait to start that paper? How, how little, how, how often can I skip class and not fail? Fortunately, I had a professor in college who ignited a fire under me about learning, and the light bulb went on, and, and it was amazing transformation. But I just really wasn't that interested in investing myself. And sometimes that's the mindset we have with God. I mean, we don't want to fail. We don't want to go to that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we want to invest as little as possible and stay out of that. And Jesus keeps telling us that's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom is about more than just losing it. It's about more than that. It's about more than not losing the kingdom. It's about engaging with the kingdom. There is a parable right before this one about, the, about ten bridesmaids. 
And, and in that time, the, 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 the way the culture worked is that the, the bride and the bridesmaids would wait at her residence until the groom came with his entourage and picked them up. And part of the game was you never knew exactly when the groom was going to arrive. And the bridesmaids would come and had to be ready. And so the story is five of them realized the groom might wait a long time to come. And so they gathered extra oil for their lamps. The other five said, yeah, we'll take our chances. We're not really that interested. And so they didn't prepare extra oil, and theirs ran out. And Jesus says that the five are wise and the other five are foolish. And the five who are foolish end up in a similar circumstance as the servant who buries his gift. They just don't care. They just are disinterested. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is not for people who are disinterested. It's about people who are willing to risk whatever that may be. If there's an Old Testament equivalent to this parable, it strikes me that it might be King Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah after the Israel and Judah divide into two separate kingdoms. And he's worried and the people are worried because Israel and Syria are planning an attack on Judah. Their armor, army is far larger than Judah's. And Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz and says, look, ask God for a sign. Ahaz says, I don't want to ask God for a sign. He said, come on, ask God for a sign. He says, no, we're not supposed to test God. I, I'm not going to ask him for a sign. And the prophet is angry with him because God is angry with Ahaz. And you think, well, wait, Ahaz is doing what Scripture says. We're not supposed to test God. But then you find out the whole story, and it's really not about testing God. It's that Ahaz has already decided he's going to call on the king of Assyria, whose army is even bigger, to come and rescue him. And he knows that if he asks God for a sign, God's going to say to him, don't go to Assyria, trust me. And he doesn't want to trust God. I want to do it my own way. The kingdom of God simply doesn't work like that. And the risk is costly. I don't necessarily, I think that the, the master, I think he would have been more pleased with this servant if he had risked and lost than what he does. Because at least he would have been put in some effort. At least he would have been willing to take a risk. Some interest. Even if he lost. Because the kingdom is about more than not losing it. And there's stories all through history of people who it looked like they lost it. From, an, from a temporal perspective. I remember reading of missionaries, you know, centuries ago who spend years preparing. And they get on a ship to go to whatever foreign country they were going to. And on the ship caught a disease and died before they ever got there. And you think, well, that risk wasn't worth it. That, one, that was a loss. That was a mistake. You read about the martyrs of the faith through the centuries. And you think, wow. Was that really the right risk to take? Was it really worth the risk? And the scriptures keep telling us, yes, yes, 
Yes, even if it doesn't look like it. The point is not success. These guys are not rewarded for what they gain because of their success, but because of their willingness to risk. The success is up to God in our lives. He's just calling us to be willing to be risk takers for him. Even if it doesn't work out the way we want it to. In one of his books, A.J. Swoboda, writes about a time when he and his wife felt prompted by the Spirit to give generously to, to an organization they loved and supported. It was a great stretch for them to do that. And so they, they prayed about it and felt like it was the right thing to do. They gave. And the, and the impression, the implication that they had was, if we are generous with this group and it stretches us, God's going to supply our need. So I had read stories all the time of people who, you know, gave generously and just at the last minute they get a check in the mail or someone hands them an envelope of cash and it covers exactly the needs that they have. And he said, we kept waiting and waiting and waiting and the check in the envelope never came. He said, it was a pretty rough two months financially for us. We really had to make some changes in our lifestyle for those two months. It was hard. He said, when the dust settled and we got through it, he said, what looked like a failure on the surface was actually a means God used to show us the depth of our relationship with other people and that he could be trusted. We walked away from that experience with a deeper level of relationship and trust with God that we didn't have before. You may be familiar with the Lilius Trotter Center here in Houghton. I mentioned Don Little's book a minute ago. Don and others are part of that organization, and they, they work with training people who work with Muslims all over the world. I'd never heard of Lilius Trotter until they introduced her to us. I've read her biography. It's wonderful. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to. A Passion for the Impossible. This is a woman in... Mid, mid to late 19th century England who was one of the rising stars in the art world. She knew the right people. She had the right connections. She had amazing gifts. And she was being recognized more and more as this phenomenal artist. Right, everything before her was fame and wealth, prosperity. But she felt God calling her to go to Algeria and minister to Muslims. And so she gave all that up, went to Algeria with a friend, and spent the rest of her life there. She writes in, her, in, in some of her journals about going through difficult times. She calls them going through deep waters. And she asked God to help her, you know, help her get out of the deep waters, to be removed from the deep waters, and, and to, to move out of those. And, and sometimes God does, but often God doesn't. And she said all of a sudden she began to realize that that what she wanted was the shallow water because the shallow water is safe and comfortable and easy. But she realized no one ever learns to swim in the shallow water. You can't learn to swim in one foot of water. You have to go into the deep. And as she looked back on things and as she could reflect on things, she realized that it was in the deep waters in those times of risk and difficulty, 
that if she began to understand the depth of God's love for her, and her trust grew deeply, and she became more and more of the person that she knew God created her to be and that she desired to be. And it started with and continued with her willingness to risk as God prompted her. I have no idea what the risks might be for you or for me. It could be a whole variety of things. I do find it interesting that after Jesus tells this parable, the rest of the chapter is about the final judgment. And Jesus talks about the final judgment that day, and he says it would be like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are those who are rewarded, and the goats are those who are condemned. And he says, here's the difference. The sheep are the people who served me, ministered for me, risked for me. And what is the risk they take? They gave me a drink when I was thirsty and food when I was hungry. And they visited me in prison. And they cared for me when I was sick. And they welcomed me as a stranger into their homes. Those are the, those are the sheep who are rewarded. And Jesus says, the sheep are going to look at him and say, when did we ever do that for you? He says, you did it for me when you did it for the least of these. And what you find is that there is this line between, between serving Jesus and serving the most vulnerable that gets blurred. There is a connection between investing ourselves in Jesus and investing ourselves in the most vulnerable. And I think part of it is because those who are most vulnerable have very few resources to give back to us. I mean, most of the time, we're willing to invest in people who we know will eventually in some form invest in us. But maybe the real test is being willing to invest ourselves to take the kinds of risks with people who have minimal, if any, ways of ever repaying us. I don't know about you, but when I think about willingness to risk, I'm thinking about grandiose things. Right? Things that make a big impression, things that make a big splash, things that are flashy. It's like this will get a really big return on my investment, and that's, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Because quite frankly, the risk may be not as big as it might seem. But it makes me wonder if before God's going to put us in those kinds of positions, he's going to see how well we do in the, in the risks where we don't have the same kind of investment. Can we, learn to, can we learn the willingness of risk with people who, in circumstances that has minimal, prog minimal ability to repay us and to give back to us? Maybe it's in that kind of risk that we truly learn what risk is about. And it doesn't make sense in our world. This is the place where the parables subvert our, our, our thinking. Because it's not, it doesn't seem very wise. It seems like an investment that, that may, not, may not bring back what we hope. 
But often that's the nature of the kingdom because we're not looking at things from a temporal perspective. We're looking at them from an eternal perspective. And everybody may not understand. I read something not too long ago. Chuck Swindoll was talking about, he heard about a little boy who, who loved birds so much that every time a bird, he, a bird let him near, he'd just pat them on the head. Every bird he could find, he would just pat them on the head. Just little love taps on their head. The birds started coming around him because they just get little love taps. And all of his friends and his family teased him, made fun of him, told him he was crazy, it was stupid what he was doing. And he finally said to them, why? Why does it bother you so much? And they said, because nobody else does that. And maybe the risk that God's asking of us is something nobody else does. I'm not saying God's, that God wants us to be the church that pats birds on the head. I don't know if that's necessarily our calling. But maybe to be the people who are willing to risk, even if it doesn't seem to make sense in a temporal way. But we sense God prompting us. I'm convinced the only way we'll do that is if we get a clear vision of the nature and the character of God. In this parable, I think we get at least two, two images of who God is. One of them is that God is generous. He is generous to entrust parts of his kingdom to his people. And he is generous with you and me. He, it is, his generosity is a huge risk for him to take. When Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in all the world, it's hard to imagine a bigger risk for God to take than, in a sense, to put the kingdom in the hands of people like us. He is generous to us, giving us resources to work with, resources to risk for the kingdom. But the other image of God we get here is not just that he's generous and full of grace, but he is also demanding. There's an accountability. Sometimes I think we, we think the gospel is just receiving God's grace and then we go off and live any way we want to. But Jesus keeps telling us again, that's not how the kingdom works. God is gracious so we can be generous, so we can take risks, and there is an accountability to that. And the accountability is not how successful were you. Because honestly, the success is really in God's hands. The accountability is how willing were you. How willing are we to risk, to obey, to trust even if the cost seems so great. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? And if we do, then out of that belief, the trust and the, the willingness to risk comes. Jen Pollock Michelle says, asks a question in one of her books. How much... 
How much does God desire to take? How much ground does God desire to take in our lives? How much ground does God desire to take in our lives? And the answer is all of it. All of it. God's desire for our lives is to have all of it. And it's not because God is a control freak. It's because he knows that he has created a world in which the only way to experience and to be what he created us to be, what deep inside we desperately seek to be and to experience is to be fully connected to him. More and more and more. And our willingness to risk for the kingdom is at the heart of that. So the question for us today is, are we willing to risk? I have no idea what the risk may be that God prompts you to or what he prompts me to. Are we willing? And do we believe that ultimately our willingness can be used by God in ways we could have never dreamed or imagined? We may never see them. But the eternal rewards, the eternal nature of the risk is greater than we could ever imagine. Holy Father, we thank you for your generosity to us. And thank you, Father, that you care so much about us. You're not willing to just let us be. You want more for us and more through us. So give us the grace to be willing to risk. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.